Thanks for so excited today. We have Christy Fay with us. And Christy, hi, it's nice to see you too, and nice to hear your voice. Um, I first was introduced to Christy uh, through Raphael, who I had met through the Good Work Society, like, oh my goodness, two and a half years ago. It always amazes me when people remember you for that long. <laughs> and he's uh, sent us an introduction, and I was so thrilled to be able to talk with you. Uh, listeners, Christy is developing an amazing new app called Nomi, N-O-M-I, and it is for folks who are neurodivergent, people with disabilities, and it's going to be set up in a way that celebrates that instead of trying to minimize or hide it. So Christy, we're so excited to have you with us today, and maybe you can chat just a little bit more about when you discovered you were neurodivergent and what led you to want to create this app and platform. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Um, yeah, so I discovered that I was autistic about two years ago. Um, my journey, I guess, is probably a pretty classic journey of like relating to people who are neurodivergent, but never really identifying as being neurodivergent, especially for folks who are taught to mask their whole lives. So I remember actually specifically I was about 12 and I was looking up like, I don't know what led me here, but I was looking up kind of the symptoms of autism and I could relate to a few of them. And I was like, oh, this would explain so much about me and my behavior and how it's kind of like difficult for me to find friendship and maintain friendships. And I just mm. kind of feel different around everybody. But it was more of a fantasy. It was like, oh, that would explain so much about me. Too bad I'm <laughs> not actually autistic. <laughs> Because <laughs> I didn't see any representation for people who looked like myself, who were born uh, and still identify as female, who were raised as a woman. And I have a lot of kind of, I don't know how to put it, but maybe al alternative symptoms of autism, big mm. square quotes around symptoms, um, <laughs> just how it uh, comes out, how I express myself. So that's another thing that along my journey, I, I haven't been professionally diagnosed, I'm self-diagnosed, and I feel like that would be a big hurdle in a pro getting a professional diagnosis for myself because I don't check a lot of the kind of standard boxes that a lot of mm -hmm. autistic folks fit into. Um, but uh, neurodivergent folks don't tend to fit into boxes, so it's actually hard <laughs> to kind of <laughs> label any of us. But yeah, that's kind of my journey. I have always dated people who are either on the spectrum or have ADHD, other people who I just have felt this innate connection with and didn't know why. I just thought like, oh, these are my people. But then it turns out, oh, they're autistic or they they have ADHD. My current uh, partner mm -hmm. has ADHD. So yeah, that's I, I think that about sums up my discovery of myself. And then um, shortly after, probably along this journey, I was watching Love on the Spectrum, um, which there's a lot to say about that show. I think it's cool, but I also think that we have a lot more progress to be made in terms of media representation of autistic folks and neurodivergence in general. So I was watching that show and the counselor was talking in the first couple of episodes about how you know, as a neurodivergent person, uh, do you say in your bio, in your dating profile bio, 
um, that you're autistic or that you have ADHD or that you're disabled in some way? Or do you tell the person when you're chatting with them? Or do you tell them on a date? Like there's always this big moment of revealing that you have a disability or that you're neurodivergent. So I was thinking to myself, you know, like, is there actually anything for us out there? Is there something that we can use and we all know that we're neurodivergent using this app or disabled using this app and there's not that big moment of like, oh no, what are they going to think about me? Are they going to judge me? So I looked into it. There is actually one if anybody wants a resource right now. There's a great app called Hiki, I think it's pronounced H-I-K-I. It's specifically for autistic folks. And it's just like a big community. It's, there's a big forum page. It's so lovely. It's everybody can, they just know that they're autistic. They can talk about it and it's all out in the open. Um, and that's more of a swipe right, swipe left platform. So for those of you who uh, like that, then that's available. And so I figured like, you know, I don't want to do something that's already been done. This is already for autistic folks. That was my initial idea. So I want to bring in elements of neurodivergence, but I also want to make this a, an app for anybody who is disabled in any way. So any, there's so much overlap. Like I did a survey and so many people say they're both disabled and neurodivergent. That was the majority of the responses that I got. So there's so much comorbidity between disability, neurodivergence, people who identify as both neurodivergent and disabled for the same thing. A lot of autistic folks to, uh, identify as disabled themselves. So I don't want anyone to feel like, oh, well, this is just an app for neurodivergent folks, so maybe I don't fit in that. Or this is just an app for disabled folks, so maybe I don't fit in that category. So I just want this to be a place where everybody can feel like they fit in, that there is something there, you are disabled, you are neurodivergent in some way, and you can find others who kind of understand that life experience already. And yeah, I think that, that that's my summary of myself and the app. Awesome. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's so amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, one of um, the things that I really love is that you're, um, you're not keeping it under yeah, a really specific branch. Like you want it to be um, intersectional, right? You want, exactly. you want people to be able to access things. And for folks that haven't had access to so many things because of being uh, unique and different, um, it just seems like a kind of a revelation to me. Like I just, it's just been so long for so many people. Um, and uh, one thing I did want to ask, and um, you may actually want to talk about this or ask about this too, Jordan, but um, I think we talked about Devin Price's work when we were chatting offline when we first met, or did we talk about Devin Price's work? I can't remember. Um, Christy, do you remember? Oh, you and I. Yeah, <laughs> you were talking yeah. about you and Jordan. <laughs> um, I don't think so because it doesn't ring a bell. Okay. But maybe we touched on it briefly. Can you jog my memory? Sure. Uh, Devin Price is uh, based out of Chicago, and uh, he wrote a book called Unmasking Autism that just came out a couple months ago. Um, but he also wrote a book um, called Laziness Does Not Exist. And one of the things that he writes often about on social media is that self-diagnosis is valid um, and that the the psychiatric approach to things, um, there's just so much gatekeeping and it and it all kind of forms itself around a capitalist system and 
Um, so what you're describing when you when you say self-diagnosis, you kind of question like whether it would be, um, I don't know, approved by somebody else. I just think that there's something that's so inherently wrong about all that. And, you know, we get into these things and I often get quite worked up about it, but, you know, people are often gatekept out of having resources available to them. That's why I think it's so important what you're doing um, yeah. because a lot of people might not feel that, like, like you said, they might not feel that um, they're included in that particular community, but they are. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. There's so much there because you know yourself better than anyone and a doctor who knows you for however many sessions, if you're lucky enough to have a family doctor, then they can know only so much about you in their professional opinion and with their biases behind them as well. So many people just walk into an appointment with somebody for a diagnosis and it could be a few sessions, but still that person only sees as much as they want to see, first of all, but also as much as you're able to show them in that short period of time. And I think that even if somebody doesn't accurately diagnose themselves, we still have alternate needs. We're still divergent in some way. So it still holds true, even if it turns out that you're not actually autistic, you have ADHD because there's so much overlap between the two of those, like you're still divergent in some way, or you just have needs that aren't being met by the system that we're under right now. So any self-diagnosis is valid, even if it doesn't turn out to be exactly what you thought it was. I don't know if that fully makes sense, but. <laughs> I think yeah, so. Yeah, okay. you kind of, you know, um, it's, it's like horseshoes. If you don't, if you don't hit it right away, you, you get it in the area, right? Um, but yeah, I'm actually, I'm, I'm kind of curious going back to that, if you don't mind. Um, obviously, you only share as much as you're comfortable with, but you mentioned that um, your presentation of autism is kind of atypical. Um, and I'm kind of curious what that looks like, because that's something that I have really wondered about in the last, uh, I guess, two years or so now, since I figured out I have ADHD, is I have a number of kind of, of symptoms, whatever you want to call it, presentations of autism as well. But, you know, after reading some of the literature and taking some tests and blah, 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 I'm pretty sure I don't. Um, but I'm just kind of curious for, for other people who are maybe wondering about uh, what a, quote, kind of atypical specimen looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, it's hard to come up with too many specifics, but one thing I suppose would be special interests and how they show themselves in my life. Um, that's a huge thing that people think of when they think of autism and if they know anything about autism. Um, a lot of people collect things, a lot of people have one like very specific interest that they know everything about and I have never had that one thing. I was really obsessed with horses when I was younger and I know that that was a special interest for me now because I did all the research and I had all the books and every horse I saw, I just wanted to stare at it and touch it. <laughs> yeah, so that like it did come up for me in some typical ways, but I've just had so many special interests and I didn't realize, but I now know that special interests can be people too. So when I was younger, I had crushes on people and they would just become my obsession 
like I couldn't stop looking at them and it was not normal <laughs> like a lot of people have crushes and it's cute and it's sweet and you're young and like you know you go out and hope that that person's looking at you hope that they like you but I would just every moment of my day revolved around having that person notice me and learning everything about that person and thinking about them constantly and looking at them when I thought that they weren't looking at me and then not realizing that they could see that I was looking at them <laughs> and that it was weird. <laughs> so that's one thing. Um, yeah, I think like it's so hard again to come up with specifics because sure. of masking because I think that it's more normalized to allow boys, people who are assigned male at birth and who are raised male, to have interests and like go out and play and experiment. And if they have any weird behaviors, it's kind of like, oh, well, they're boys, like they'll either grow out of it or whatever. So I think that boys are more free to be who they are when they're younger. Whereas girls, it almost feels like, obviously I can only speak from my experience and I was raised as a woman, um, girls are less free to go play, get dirty, like go out and experience life and get messy. So we're always taught like, oh, this is how you're supposed to present yourself to men so that you can be a good partner in the future. And this is how to have responsibilities and how to manage tasks. And like, there's always this kind of insidious training and we are almost more scrutinized, I think, in my opinion, again, from my limited experience, um, as to how we are constantly presenting ourselves, like our facial expressions and trying to be likable. Like there's a lot right. of likability that we are trained to have as young women and into our teenagehood and into our adulthood. So I think that that's almost covered up a lot of more traditional um, symptoms that I could have presented as a kid. So, yeah, I think the special interest thing would be the main thing that comes up in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, I have a list somewhere <laughs> of the things yeah. that I do, but it's, it's hard to come up with it. Um, if you ask me again at the end, we'll see if I can. If oh, yeah, I no, no worries. I was just kind of curious because, yeah, um, yeah like I said, I, I had wondered about my own experience. And a lot of that was tied to special interests. Um, you know, I have yeah. been a, a collector of many things throughout my life uh, and, you know, had all kinds of, um, yeah, just kind of like hyper specific interests that would that would be relative flash in the pan like maybe a year or two kind of thing but then there are a few kind of core things that have stuck around um but i wanted to double back to something that you said just now about uh about girls kind of not having the uh freedom to kind of like go out and and experiment and get dirty and all that kind of stuff and i think that that girls also don't have the freedom to be quote weird uh to the degree that boys do and i think that that's a big part of where the masking stuff ends up covering up autistic women is because yeah like it's 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 totally fine for boys to know uh, the name of every dinosaur and and what period they lived in contemporaneous to one another and blah blah blah. 
But if you're a girl that knows that stuff, that's like, whoa, what's going on here? Uh, and so, you know, like, like, yeah, you, you, you get kind of uh, uh, whatever ostracized a little bit for that. And that creates that masking and that social pressure to mask. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that's so right. Yeah, I thinking back to my own childhood, I feel like there were just like the boys who would talk about the dinosaurs, about the cars, about the trains, etc. And the girls would almost like look at them like, oh, that's just boys. And we don't do that kind of thing. That's such a boy thing. But I'm sure that I went to school with a girl who was so smart. She had memorized so many things from so many books. If I had any question, I would ask her. And she was ostracized from the social group of elementary school. So yeah, I think that's that's so true because the guys had each other and they were able mm -hmm. to just more normalize that within their own group and it didn't matter what the girls thought. But then when a girl went ahead and did that herself, she was like, why don't I have friends? <laughs> mm -hmm. oh, I, I really um, resent that kind of conditioning. Um, yeah. And the fact that you called it insidious training, I think just nails it, you know, because it is insidious uh, to be kind of placed into these gender binaries um, that are so stifling that really they stifle creativity and expression and the full um, experience of, of life. You know, when, when people are just like naturally drawn to something that should be celebrated rather than like, um, putting them into a position where they have to mask who they really are because that's so damaging. Right. Um, it is, you know, when you're, when you're told to not trust your own impulses, then you, you start to become somebody that you're not. Um, and then you can like people live whole lives like that, you know, where they just feel like everything I say doesn't matter. They question themselves. Um, I get into these loops sometimes Jordan and I were chatting just before where I feel so grossly inefficient. And it just like that is conditioning. That is something that Absolutely. the way that I think, the way my mind works, the way I express myself um, was never celebrated as a kid. And I was always kind of taught to be, you know, I was taught to like straighten my hair, do all these things, like try to be fit into this weird, unattainable mold um, that was manufactured by the patriarchy, basically. <laughs> um, and, um, and so now I'm kind of uncovering all these things like sort of later in life. Yeah, and what I'm really curious about too, and maybe you can um, speak a little bit to that before I ask my next question. I don't want to cut you off. Yeah, I, I'm mostly just agreeing with you. So, right. So we were talking about how people are sort of forced into these gender binaries from birth and, and how they're so damaging. And um, what I really love about what you're doing is saying that these things are, are they, they don't matter that much. And um, what matters is who you are uh, as a human being. Um, and yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's harmful for everyone. I feel like this is the bottom line of, like, when we talk about the patriarchy, it's not actually benefiting anyone. <laughs> it's something that we've created, and it's in all of our institutions, all of our organizations, all of our social settings, and it's not working for literally anyone. It creates shame in men because you can't express yourself it's not socially acceptable to be vulnerable so that creates shame and for women we feel like we're always having to perform for the male gaze no matter what your sexual orientation is everyone is taught that you need to be a certain way in order for men to like you and to get approval for the patriarchy from the patriarchy 
so yeah i think i mean it's just ridiculous that we're still upholding these values that have never actually i mean they work for some people like the there's probably one percent of people that this works for um i still feel like it's harmful for them but they may still feel even if they face it that they are benefiting more than not so there are people out there who it benefits that's fine for them go them um but for 99 percent of us <laughs> That doesn't work. It's it's just ridiculous. So yeah, um, trying to dismantle that in small ways is another part of this app. I think that you have shed a bit of light on that for me too, because I truly believe that everyone should be able to express themselves, to be themselves, and to not be shamed for who they are because everyone has gifts to offer. Everyone has something beautiful inside of them and we should be allowed to express that it doesn't make any sense that we should not be allowed to express that that's what we're here for that's like we're here to work on ourselves and help each other and if we're not allowed to express ourselves then we can't do that we can't accomplish what we should be accomplishing on the earth Ooh, I love that so much, Christy. I think you just like articulated it so beautifully, right? Thank um, you. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about how, I know you can't get into too many details about how the app is designed, um, but what you're thinking about and how it will be invitational and um, accessible um, for people who wouldn't ordinarily um, really enjoy being on a dating app because you, you talked about it right at the beginning. And I think this is so important um, that um, you have to kind of question in sort of quote, standardized platforms and dating apps, <clears throat> when to reveal who you really are. And maybe you can talk about how this app is different for that. Yeah, so inherently by creating a platform for neurodivergent and disabled people, there is an understanding that at least most of the people that you're talking to are disabled and neurodivergent. It is open to everyone because we don't want to gatekeep disabilities, so that's another um, accessibility hurdle that could actually be a deterrent for people who are neurodivergent or disabled who then have to like prove somehow that they are disabled and neurodivergent, so we don't want to do any of that. Um, and actually a lot of people have requested that it be open to everybody. We just lift up the voices of neuro neurodivergent and disabled folks. So that's the first thing. It's accessible to everyone. Um, the second thing is throughout the sign-up process, we want that to be accessible. So we're trying to simplify it, add imagery where we can add imagery where that's accessible. Um, literally just coding it to be accessible. So having the accessibility, I think it's called WCAG accessibility requirements. So bringing that up to code. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, so that's our, those are a couple of things that we're doing to start off with. And yeah, throughout the sign up process, we want that to be as simple as possible. There are a lot of people with, um, intellectual disabilities who have requested that we make that just like super simple, really straightforward, add instructions where we can add instructions, have support for people who need help setting up a profile. So that will be the first like few steps. And from there, when you 
enter the app, you're presented with the page that uh, will show all of the people that uh, you can see, all of the profiles, and we're not going to follow the classic uh, swipe right, swipe left method. I think that that works for some platforms. Um, specifically, Tinder is great for quick hookups. Like that's exactly what swipe right, swipe left was created for. It's brilliant <laughs> for their business model. <laughs> so we obviously want to help people find whatever they're looking for. We're not shaming anybody who's just looking for hookups. Um, but I think as a general rule, we don't want people to gamify people. So we want to allow people to look through profiles at their own leisure. Um, we want to be able to allow people to save profiles for later. So if they really like this person, but they have anxiety in the moment, they don't want to reach out immediately, they don't know what to say, this person's really pretty, just save their profile for later, and then uh, you can contact them when you're feeling less anxious about it. So that's another big accessibility thing for folks that was, I'm surprised at how, um, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this, but it's amazing to me how much people are willing to share of their own experience with dating apps. So I haven't personally had too much experience with dating apps. At least I didn't have a lot of luck when I first started with dating apps. So I kind of scrapped the whole idea, but um, a lot of people, have thought about this and have so many insights into what we can do to improve dating apps. And that was something that I never would have thought about saving a profile for later. It seems so simple, but it's something that many people independently have come up with and told us that this would be amazing to have. So that's fantastic. And yeah, just adding a lot of imagery, adding a lot of support, having a lot of accessible customer service for if anyone has any quick questions, they can just pop us the question and they don't need to go through the trials and tribulations of <laughs> emailing and then getting the, yeah, we'll get back to you within two months and then <laughs> deciding not to use the app anymore because they never got their question answered. So yeah. I think that's kind of the basics of how we want to make that accessible. That's great. Um, I, I've got a few questions for you kind of about, I guess about, uh, yeah, I, I guess I'm just kind of wondering like, is this, is this just you or do you have like a team that works with you? And then I'm also kind of curious, like how you, how you got into uh, development and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so first of all, I have a team. I'm the only person doing it full time. I have a developer who is working on it part-time and another developer who's also working on it part-time but has a full-time job. So I'm doing most full-time. Um, the developer doing the front-end work is doing second most full-time. And then the third developer, second developer, <laughs> not developing it personally, is working on it kind of like on the weekends, but he's developing all of the back-end and algorithm work. And then we have somebody who's helping us with our brand and strategizing, and he's been super helpful. He's worked for dating apps before, so he kind of has a lot of insight into the like testing that other dating apps have done. So they've already done the work, and now he's able to kind of give me some of the information right. from that. So that's been amazing. Um, 
and we have somebody helping us with writing so some of the website writing and writing like just specific wording of things i'll throw a super bad draft whatever at him and he'll come up with something beautiful so <laughs> that's super awesome um yeah and then we have somebody who's helping us with general like hr stuff and so i think our team is a about so it's five a whole company. six people right now. Yeah, <laughs> nice. none of them cool. get paid. I don't get paid right now. <laughs> Neither do they. It's a passion project for the moment. Nice. <laughs> so that's amazing because I know that once we have money, we're just going to be able to work on it even right. harder and we'll be able to commit more time to it. But for the moment, people are so willing to just like sit down and talk about it and like do some work on the side. So that's been so fantastic for us. Nice. Yeah. And your second question, what was your second question? Well, I was again? curious kind of how you, uh, if you wanted to talk about kind of getting into development and, and just kind of interest in, in programming and software and that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So I am a web developer. Um, I took a little boot camp course when I lived in Montreal. I did that for about three months. It was super intense, very full-time, three months of waking up, coding, having a quick bite to eat, coding, <laughs> dreaming about coding, waking <laughs> up and coding. <laughs> so I, I feel like I had a great crash course. I have some of the terminology down. I started working for a little startup. I was a front-end uh, engineer for that startup. And then they unfortunately uh, shut down. Um, they were a little company that had been going for like probably nine months at the point where I jumped in. And they decided that like the founders were pretty young. They wanted to go back to school. So they decided that they would um, sell the company. And at that point I was like, you know what? It was so, like, I'm not averse to hard work, obviously, I started a company, but it was so difficult to land that job. And now I have a bit more experience behind me, but the thought of going through that interview process again and working for a company whose values I didn't necessarily align with just because they had the resources to hire a junior developer, I just, I didn't want to commit my time to something that I didn't fully believe in anymore. So that's around the time that I was like... I can do this. I can do this on my own. I have a great idea. I just want to jump in and start this and see what happens. And if I fail, I fail spectacularly. So I did it and it's working so far. <laughs> That's awesome. But <laughs> Good yeah. for you. Yeah, thanks. I feel like because of that, to answer your question a little bit more, um, I decided that I didn't want to take charge of the development of the app because for a few reasons. Um, first off, I would have to learn a native language, which is what you need to know for developing an app. And that would be easier because I had a base of JavaScript and web development, but it wouldn't like it would take a lot of time and resources that I didn't feel that I had at the time. Um, and I knew that I wouldn't do as good of a job in as fast of a time as somebody who's been doing this as their career. Sure. And I am glad that I had the experience of a software developer because I am able to kind of communicate with my developers a little bit more. I understand what they're saying. Yeah. I'll sit in on meetings between the two of them and I can actually keep up with them. So that's really helpful. And yeah, 
So that's kind of my experience with the software side of things. Nice. Yeah, Robbie and I both came from, uh, well, we met working together at a startup. Um, mm. And that was, uh, she was copywriting and I was working in search and metadata. And yeah, okay. so like from, from the search and metadata perspective, like that was always really tough when when you're kind of trying to communicate with somebody who ultimately calls the shots on what you do, but doesn't understand what you and your team do mm -hmm. or how anything you do works. And it's yeah. just like, like, how do you bridge that gap? It's really, really difficult. And then, you know, like, so your concerns aren't taken seriously because the people just literally do not understand what you're talking about. And mm -hmm, yeah, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a tough spot to be in. Um, I guess the last sort of thing specific, like, I guess, development wise, I'm curious about, uh, well, I guess not development, but, um, uh, yeah, I'm just, you, you mentioned kind of getting this feedback from, from other people and like prospective users. And I'm just kind of curious what, what that process has looked like. Like, have you been doing, um, like alpha testing on this sort of stuff or just sort of pre-soliciting feedback during the development process? Or, or I guess, how are you, how are you reaching out to and hearing from, uh, disabled and neurodivergent people? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so initially we had a survey. And because of the CBC article and interview, I was able to collect a lot of responses from that. So we have nice. 150 responses from the first round of the survey. And I refined the survey with the person who's helping me write things. So uh, after that first survey, we now have more specific questions that will be able to, that will help us present to investors when that time comes. So those are the first two kind of initial um, questionnaires, feedback, uh, ways of getting feedback that we have. Um, but it's still not like personally talking to people one-on-one -on -one and presenting the right. app to them and seeing what they think about it. So yeah, that's kind of like helped us to get more specific, know where we need to focus and where people may not really care about some features that we develop so we can kind of do that on a later date. So that helped us get clear on what our minimum viable product is. And now I'm working with the person helping me with brand strategy, helping us with brand strategy, trying to <laughs> shift that language a little bit. It's not just me anymore. Right. Um, yeah. So the person helping us with brand strategy is really good at creating test plans and he's done this many times before. So now we're creating just a little clickable prototype. Um, so that will be done pretty soon, I think. And then we will be able to actually present a thing to people and see how they respond, what they want more of, what they want less of, whether what we're doing is working. So that's kind of how we're going to proceed. Right now we're between the survey and that. And I'm really excited for that because I can't wait to hear how people are responding to what we've put together. And I think that what we have so far is amazing, but of course I am and will continue to be biased throughout this whole process. So <laughs> understandably so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, We've already reiterated the wireframe, the kind of prototype a few times, and now um, we'll have something to present to people. So yeah, that's kind of how we're conducting that. Uh, so this may seem like one of the more basic questions I can ask you, but why the name Nomi? I think I know why, N-O-M-I, but where, where did that come from for you? That's yeah, um, I guess like the long-winded story of how the name came about would be I was listening to a podcast where the um, 
head, the CEO of Hinge, the founder of Hinge, was talking about how the name Hinge came about. So he said, you know, it was a long time ago too that Hinge was created, but the market was so saturated with dating apps already that anything that had to do with dating, any name that had to do with love, dating, anything was already taken. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, we're creating a company. I don't know. Let's just throw a number out there. 10 years after he founded Hinge and he just ended up having to find a placeholder name. So Hinge was initially just a name that he like he said, I looked at a door. I saw the Hinge. I called it Hinge. It was a placeholder. Now it's Hinge. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was thinking about it and my first idea was Eros, E-R-O-S. It's the god of love. I didn't actually know that it was the god of love when I first had the name knocking around in my head. Um, I looked into the disability flag. I didn't want to call it something uh, disability anything because I didn't want, again, to pigeonhole people or have people say, oh, this is like for people who are very disabled or something like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that preconceived notions that people have about apps that um, are or people with disabilities, even though there shouldn't be, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so yeah, I wanted it to be Arrows, and that was the working name for a little while, but then I realized it's the God of Love, so it's going to be, there's going to be so many Arrows, and sure enough, I looked it up, there were way too many Arrows, and I would just have drowned in the market of dating apps called Arrows. Um, and I just finished re-watching my favorite show, Sense8, on Netflix. And so I was totally enamored with Nomi, one of the characters on Sunset. She's a self-proclaimed hacktivist and she's just like an all-around badass person. So I decided that that would be the working name. And then my partner was like, oh yeah, like Nomi, like phonetically Nomi. And I was like, oh my god, it's perfect. <laughs> Nice. So that's how the name came about. It was initially just like, oh, I like this character. That's a cool name. I wanted it to be something that people can say easily, that they can remember. And it turned out that that's kind of like what we're going to start branding with, I guess. Like, know me, get to know me. So, yeah. So cool. That's the story of the name. Um, so I don't know how much you'd want to talk about this, but... Just in my own experience of dating apps when I was younger, it's been a long time since I've even considered any of that I've been a long-term relationship, but I was around kind of at the beginning of um, websites like Lava Life, <laughs> Plenty of Fish. Oh my goodness. Um, so mortifying yeah. to, to look back on that when people were sending me carrots and pictures of their dick, which was awful. <laughs> um, I think that still happens. I don't know. Um, but... <laughs> I like the idea that you talked about of saving profiles, but what I'm curious about um, is I really suffer, of course, with the, with the rejection-sensitive dysphoria. So if I indicate to someone that I'm interested in them and they don't respond, that, that could, in the past even then, sort of paralyze me for a few days. I would just feel insufficient and lame and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, is there ways to kind of build this thing so that when communication is happening, um, there's a little bit less of that. I mean, you can't, of course, you can't prevent hurt feelings in the world. I understand people are going to get hurt. And, and love is the, one of the biggest risks you can take in your life. I get that. And I also know it's also about friendship too, not just that. But is there is there something along the development path that is being built in that maybe um, reduces that 
Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm phrasing that well enough to be clear, but do you get what I'm saying? I do. Yeah, it's actually something that we haven't come up with anything for as of yet, but it is in our brain. We definitely want to, because it, it really is a common issue for neurodivergent folks, re rejection sensitive, um, anything. Yeah. So yeah, we don't have anything yet for that. And it's something that we're going to conduct focus groups on. We really want to know how people want that to be handled because we want people to be able to message folks that they think are cool and we want that to be open, but we also want to be sensitive to people who send a message and then will feel really hurt when they don't actually get a response. So yeah, it's, it's a big thing that we haven't yet come up with anything for. So I do appreciate you bringing it up because it's definitely something that we need to consider throughout every step of the development process, especially in considering how we're going to handle messaging and matching. Yeah. And I mean, like I said, it's, you know, you can't really sort of prevent people from getting hurt and especially when you're already kind of sort of wading into a, a vulnerability pool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the messaging and the way that it's set up, I think it, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to be a little more sensitive. Yeah. To, you know, human beings on either side of these uh, photos and algorithms. Um, it It's tough too, though, because like, so there, there's a couple of things that are interesting to me about that is that, um, so RSD and uh, so so let's say we've got a person with RSD on one end and the other uh, perspective love interest is a person with anxiety. That's going to create like this interesting kind of positive feedback loop where uh, this person with anxiety doesn't want to want to respond to this message. And the longer they take, the worse this other person is feeling and blah, blah, blah. And honestly, it's going to sound it's going to sound insensitive, but like as, as tough as RSD is and I deal with it constantly. Unfortunately, it's a thing that you really have to learn to manage yourself. And you, I don't feel like you can, I it, like it, it sucks, but there's certain things where like, you, you can't expect the world to accommodate for you in that way. Like, unfortunately for better or worse, no one owes you anything. No one owes you a message back. And especially not, you know, when there are, you know, there's a lot of people on different platforms that aren't aren't great people um and i'm not saying that that's going to end up happening but um yeah i just i just think it's it's uh yeah it, it's important to recognize that these feelings are real and they do hurt a lot but also for better and worse they're that person's to deal with and and not someone else's responsibility in my opinion yeah that is helpful um because as accessible as we want to make this app, we will always drop the ball somewhere. There's, n It's never going to be a perfect app. We can only strive for accessibility, um, as much accessibility as possible, and continue um, hearing people and talking to people and asking questions and getting curious about that. But yeah, I do appreciate that because it's... Like I've sat down and thought about this and I'm like, how could we handle messaging in a way that will be the most comfortable for people with RSD? So I have not, again, come up with anything, but um, yeah, I think 
moving forward, talking to people, continuing to ask questions will just be the best way to handle that. Because I think a lot of people, like you said that you have RSD, you both have RSD. So that's something um, that hearing from you as the person with RSD, that you know that this is something that you um, have, that you handle every day, and that it's something that you know is something that is personal to you and not other people's fault. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, it shows a lot of uh, growth in terms of well, you as a person. <laughs> it took me a long time to get there. Don't, don't get me wrong. Like yeah. I didn't, I didn't figure this out till like three years ago and I'm about to turn 40, but, um, you know, yeah. it, it, it is what it is. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, it's a really unique set of challenges, um, uh, putting together like a, a, a dating or friendship app for neurodivergent people, but you've clearly put a lot of thought and care into that. Um, you know, coming from the background that only a neurodivergent person can. So coming with, with experience. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Robbie, did you have anything else or? <laughs> yeah, I was, um, thank you, Jordan, for pointing out that piece too about the RSD because, um, sometimes, uh, yeah, I, I have this like always like with the eye towards justice and like thinking of those who are less resourced than others, but there are some things in life that, you know, being hurt is part of, is the biggest risk that you take when you put yourself forward into a new relationship, whether that's a, as a friend or um, in a romantic sense. And that's the risk, but it's also the reward when, when it's met with the, with the equal and like with the being reciprocated, like that's, you know, the best, right? <laughs> so yeah, I, I appreciate uh, what you said about that, Jordan. Um, uh, in terms of the, is it going to be kind of separated? So um, when you talk about it, being for love, but also for meeting friends. Is it all kind of, you know, I, I can't remember the app. Um, is it Meet or something? One meet of the Meetup. Meet um, I think there's like all these different sort of categories. Is it going to be categorized that way? Um, or would it just kind of be like, hey, let's just connect and, and not worry too much about whether it's for friendship or for love? That's another thing that we're still unsure about. I personally appreciate the separation. I think that it kind of helps to just be in the dating section then you know that everyone that you're seeing and every profile that's being shown to you is also looking for the same thing that you're looking for. But at the same time, it also might diminish your opportunity for connection because you won't be shown as many people and you might be less open to friendship if you're specifically in the dating category. And then you'd have to switch back to the friendship when you feel like finding a friend. So I like the separation just in the way that my brain works. Um, the person who's helping me do the back end is less excited about that separation. He thinks that it would be cool to maybe just have in your basic info or like be able to filter, maybe um, somehow just present that I'm looking for both love and friendship or I'm just looking for friendship or whatever you're looking for. So that could open up a little bit more complication if like you see people who are looking for friendship and you're just looking for love, you may not notice that they're just looking for friendship and or people won't respect that and pursue you in a romantic way, even though that's not what you're looking for. So yeah, it's another big question that we'll have to present to focus groups and just continue prototyping for that. 
I think that uh, I think that having a clear delineation uh, is important when you're serving a neurodiverse clientele because you know that's yeah it, just having those kind of uh, yeah that, that that clearly outlined stuff uh, does go a long way um, uh, and then you know there can't you can't make those claims if you're uh, you know that like oh I I didn't uh, sorry I I didn't mean to I was here in the friendship one by accident or whatever. Um, yeah, I had another question, but I forgot it for the moment. Oh, yeah, that's what it was, because uh, Robbie brought up Meetup, and I was actually thinking about Meetup, too, because um, I'm kind of curious specifically what the, uh, the, the the making friends end of things, not the dating end of things, would look like, because, um, you know, there are sites like Meetup, and I've used those in the past to, uh, to find friends with uh, similar interests, but, of course, a lot of that stuff uh, isn't catered to um, disabled people. A lot of that stuff is like outdoorsy stuff or, or rec leaks that kind of thing um, or necessarily neurodiverse people either um, and so yeah so I'm just kind of curious what what the the friendship making end of it would look like yeah um, yeah again we've mostly done our most of our focus has been on the romantic end of things so far since that's the not by much but it is the most requested aspect but in terms of friendship, we want to give people a lot of opportunity to answer very friend-specific questions on their profile. So, like, what does friendship even look like to you? Are we compatible <laughs> in that way? So a lot of people, a lot of neurodivergent people like parallel play, and that might be more relevant when you're making a friend and less relevant when you're looking for a romantic partner. Um, just throwing that out there, I don't actually know if that's true, but for some people that might be more important for friends to know. So when you have a friend, do you want to go outside with them? Is like if I only meet my friends outside and somebody is unable to leave their house, that would not be a very compatible partnership or friendship. So yeah, having a lot of like, what do you want in friendship? what does it look like? What are your boundaries in terms of friendship? And um, do you, are you very close to your friends? Do you like to see your friends every month? Do you talk every day? Like, do you text every day? Or do you text maybe once a week and check in with each other once in a while? So there's a lot of questions that we don't ask when we um, have friends, when we make friends, when we're meeting people. And they're really important things. Like if you go into a friendship without asking what their expectations are with communication, then one person might think that you're a bad friend because you're not communicating with them every day. And you're like, oh, cool, we're such good friends. We don't have to talk every day. <laughs> and that's true also with partnerships. But yeah, I really want to like kind of change the narrative with friendship and make it as structured, I guess, as we approach partnerships. So helping to facilitate that structure with friendships as well. Um, other than that, I think that a lot of people have different kind of personas with friends than they have with romantic partners. Sure. And I think that's valid. I think that everyone has their way of doing things. I personally also have a different persona with my romantic partners than I do with friends. So um, I also like the thought of having them separated, the romantic section and the friendship section, just for the ability to present yourself as a partner and then present yourself as a friend. 
there's always like everyone has different comfort levels i sure. really like spending most of my time with my partner i live with my partner he's my best friend we talk every day obviously we live together <laughs> <laughs> and that's really important for me and other people that might be less important they might put more emphasis on community and friendship and they want to do that with their friends but with their partners they want a little bit more separation so yeah, I think having different profiles will help facilitate both romantic partnership and uh, friendship as well. And yeah, I think past that, we'll just have to kind of figure out what specific questions we want to ask um, for people looking for friends versus partners or both. And what people find is working with the friendship section whether it's the section or if it's all together whether people are actually finding connections and what they would prefer friendship to look like on the app versus a romantic partnership so that's about as far as we've gotten so far mm, it's so interesting um because i have um other adhd pals and their love language is memes you know, they'll send me like six memes in a row on my stories and like back channels on social medias and and at first i was kind of like and then I realized, oh, this is love language. You know? <laughs> Memes like, are a love is... language. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it'd be so great to be able to identify things like that because some people would find that annoying, but I find it kind of delightful. And I even send like to my partner, like once or twice a day, some silly thing that I see that just causes me delight. And I, I know he's going to share on that delight. Um, but there's no, there's no um, expectation of a response. It's just like, here's me just showing you that I'm thinking about you. And because Jordan once, I think, spoke really eloquently to this, that sometimes with ADHD, it's out of sight, out of mind, and you literally don't exist. So sending those little memes is like a little reminder that, yes, I remember you exist. Mm -hmm. I don't have capacity to write you a full message right now, but here's a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I love that so much. That's a great way to think about it. Hmm. suddenly they're a little less annoying <laughs> <laughs> yeah because at first I was like and you know especially with age differences too because I'm you know now in my early 50s and some of the things that the quote kids are finding hilarious I'm like could you please not mash that into a three second segment like maybe I want it to be a bit longer but now I'm starting to understand that that is a form of communication um, and 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 that it is a it is affection it's it's being sent with affection um, and uh, yeah that's really cool. Um, so I feel like this is just an amazing conversation. And I know we're um, coming up to an hour. And that's generally my capacity point when it comes to zoom. Um, so um, maybe you could share, do you know when that prototype will be ready? You mentioned that there was going to be a clickable prototype ready sometime in the near future. I don't want to push you on a deadline. But do you have a kind of a rough idea? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the full thing. We will be just prototyping the gender section soon, I think, mm -hmm. because again, catering to the neurodivergent community, there's so much diversity. So many people have different genders and expressions and like there's just no section that we can put people into, nor do we want to. So we want to approach it in a way that is the most compatible with um, alternate gender identities and sexualities. So yeah, we'll be conducting that hopefully soon because I don't think we're going to do any code for that part. 
um, we're just going to present how does this look to you? Would you like this? Um, so that should be soon. I still don't have a specific date, but I'll let you know when mm. that's available. And if your community wants to participate in that, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, as for the larger clickable prototype, it should be within the next couple of months. But since the developer has a part-time job and we're just a tiny team right now, um, mm -hmm. we are not 100% sure when that'll be available. Okay. Um, and how about how can our listeners support you? Like, how can they find out more? How can they make sure the word gets out? Uh, what can, what's the call to action, Christy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the call to action would be to visit our website. That's where we have all of our contact information. You can go to the contact page and fill out the current survey that we have. We're still collecting responses for that one. So that would be very helpful. Um, just emailing me about your personal experience. I won't say my email right now because I always mess it up. But mm -hmm. if you go to the website, N-O-M-I Connect. So Nomi Connect, N-O-M-I-C-O-N-N-E-C-T dot net. Then you can navigate the website, find all our contact info, find out a little bit more about us. And on the about page, I am the only one there so far so you can read a little bit about me um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah I think right now it would be so helpful to have more subscriptions for updates so that's where we have all of the numbers that we can show investors that these are the people who want updates this is they want it to happen so mm -hmm. if you want to show your support in that way we will email you when it's available in different areas we're not collecting area information right now so we'll not be able to say specifically when it's available in your area but we'll tell you when it's actually in the app store and um, update you once in a while i haven't sent any emails yet so we're not spammy that way mm. um, but that would be very very helpful and then filling out our survey would be the next very very helpful thing it just takes a few minutes and it gives us so much information that we need to continue developing this for our community Amazing. Well, thank you so much for everything that you're doing, Christy. Do you have um, some more to add to that, Jordan? No, but uh, uh, this was a really, really great conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I learned a lot. I'm excited to uh, see how the app progresses. And it was a pleasure to meet you today, Christy. Thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you too and to talk to you guys today. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me.